Uh, Nick Nowak is a friend of mine, lives here in Astoria. He is pastor of the neighborhood church in Greenwich Village. And I first got to know Nick. I was connected with him by Will Choi and Joanne Chin. They've known him for, for a number of years and appreciate his ministry. Uh, Nick studied for the ministry at Bethel Seminary and at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He did a two-year apprenticeship under uh, the leadership of a pastor many of you have heard of, Pastor John Piper in, uh, in Minnesota. And he has worked most of his ministry in student ministry in various uh, Ivy League schools. Um, one thing I appreciate, appreciate about Nick is that he has a passion for Scripture, for the written Word of God, and for the way the truth of God's Word answers questions that many people in our generation have today. He just has a wonderful gift of expounding God's Word in the context of our world. So let's look together at the passage of Scripture, and then we'll hear from uh, Reverend Nowak. From 1 Corinthians 1, and then also from 1 Corinthians 7. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. From chapter 7. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not concern yourself about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, 
and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nick, if you'd come. Good morning, Astoria Church. It is wonderful to be with you. It's been good getting to know your pastor, your wonderful pastor, in the last couple of years. And I've known Joanne in particular over here since we were both part of the same small group in the same church up near Columbia University where I used to do campus ministry and through Joanne then got to know Will. And, uh, and even though I am a pastor in Greenwich Village in the West Village on Bleecker Street, in between 6th and 7th Avenue, my wife and I live right down the street on Crescent Street. And so we live on this street, and if you just walk um, past the bridge over towards Astoria Park, it's literally like a five or six minute walk for me to get here. So this is really nice, just having a real brisk walk on Sunday morning. And I'm a Queens kid originally, and, uh, and maybe as a way to get into our passage, if you want to keep First Corinthians 7, that's the main passage we'll be looking at, kind of open before you. Um, this is a hard, difficult complicated passage. We didn't even read most of it. It is, if you would go home later today or sometime this week and you would read the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, it's the longest discussion of sex, of marriage and singleness in the entire Bible, and yet it's really bizarre. It's even an infamous chapter. We even kind of got a little sense of that when we, when we heard Pastor David read it out loud. If you're not married, don't seek a wife. Um, really easy to misunderstand that. Just to give you a little context, I got married a little over a year ago. Um, and so I'm not here to tell you that you can't get married or that if you have gotten married, you've done something wrong. Although sometimes this passage can, can make it sound like that. Um, and, and, and here's the way that I want us to think about this. And, and just so you know, my, my goal this morning in the, in the little time I have with you is not to talk about marriage and singleness and sex. It's to talk much bigger picture about our entire life more comprehensively as Christians, individually, as the church of God corporately, and, and, and we want to look at, and we're going to look at, the, the, the kind of logic that's underneath the surface, the, the, the iceberg underneath, the tip of the iceberg that comes up here. And, and we see, if you were listening as Pastor David read it out loud, that, that there's two reasons I think that this passage applies to much more in our lives than just whether you're single or married. Um, one is that Paul explicitly applies the logic in the passage that we read to socioeconomic status, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. He applies it to ethnicity and culture in that context, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. Today, what cultural background you come from, and I don't even think that that's, the, that, that's not the, the limit of its application. I think it, it connects to what career, vocation you, you practice. It, it connects to where you might live geographically in a city, in New York, somewhere else, rural or suburban. Um, it connects, I think, to every area of our life. It's not just about singleness and marriage. And second, he says at the very beginning of the section in chapter 7, verse 17 that Pastor David read for us, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, this is my rule in all the churches. So this is not some kind of ad hoc secondary advice that he's either making up as he goes or that's peripheral. He says, wherever I go, this is one of the ABCs of the Christian life that I want all Christians to know about and know how to apply to all the areas of their life. Here, because of the situation in Corinth, he is talking more about singleness and marriage, but it connects to every area of our life. Here's the way that I want us to, to, to look at 1 Corinthians 7 for a few minutes this morning. Um, I don't know hardly any of you. I think hardly any of you know me. I can't see all of you who are at home watching this online. Um, but if, if we would get to know one another better, 
at some point, whether it be in the first day we get to know each other, whether it be weeks, months, years later, at some point, one of the best ways to get to know another human, and, and even to get to know ourselves, is to ask the question in one way or another, what do you aspire to in your life? What do you hope your life will look like? Probably no matter what your age, no matter what your current situation and circumstances, no matter where you come from, no matter whether this is overall kind of a, a good season or a hard season, a frustrating season, a boring season, we all have a sense of what we hope our life will look like in the months and years and decades to come. What do we aspire to? What is, to, to use our language and our culture, what's our ambition for life? Whether it's our own personal happiness, our own sense of flourishing, whether it's a sense of making a difference in the world and, and changing the world and leaving it a better place, what do we aspire that the lives that we've been given by God would look like? And to that question, Paul gives this very counterintuitive, countercultural answer, which is, whatever condition, whatever circumstances of your life God has called you into, just stay there. He says it three times. Did you notice this? In this central paragraph in 1 Corinthians 7, in verse 17, he says it for the first time, only, here's the rule, whatever condition you're in, whatever circumstances the Lord assigned to you when he called you, just live that life. Just lead that life. He says it again in the middle of the paragraph in verse 20. Each of you should remain in the condition in which you were called. And then he says it one more time at the end of this paragraph in verse 24. So then, brothers, conclusion, and sisters, in whatever condition each of you was called, there and there let him remain with God. And, and we read chapter 1 or a section of chapter 1 before that, and, and maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, but the connection between this earlier section in chapter 1 that was read out loud and the section we're looking at now is the language of calling. Earlier in the letter, he reminded them, think about your calling, brothers and sisters, and calling here is not I'm called to be a teacher or I'm called to be single or married or I'm called to live in the city. Calling here is when you became a Christian, called to be a Christian. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. It, literally, the word is look at it. Imagine, remember when you guys all became Christians in Corinth a few years ago, and the one thing Paul reminds them about the circumstances they're calling is not many of them were wise in the world's standards, not many of them were rich, now, many of them had much cultural power. They were basically at the bottom of the ladder, not the top of the ladder. And now in chapter 7, he is telling them, and I want you to stay there. I want you to remain there. This is about as counterintuitive in our culture, even in the church, as you can get. One of the many reasons that I increasingly suspect as I get older, and as Pastor David mentioned, I've been doing campus ministry with college students, with graduate students for about 15 years before transitioning into pastoral ministry in the local church, is one of the many ways that, that, that I suspect that Paul, the Apostle Paul's correspondence with the church in Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, is some of the most relevant stuff in the Bible for us today, is that of all the churches in the first generation of Christianity, the church in Corinth is without a close second the most similar to our culture today. It was a place where nobody was from there, that, that it had only been replanted about 50 years before Paul got there as a city had been desolate for decades, and so nobody was from there. It was former slaves, former soldiers in the Roman Empire that were relocated there. There was no old money there. It was all new money, and, and it was the kind of place where whatever you were born into being, you didn't have to stay there. Most people came to Corinth in order to become somebody that they weren't before they got there, and in that, it is very much like New York. City, 
let alone America, let alone the Western world, the Western culture. There's lots of other parallels. Sexual immorality and sexual you know, selfishness was very widespread. But more than anything else, there was a culture of upward mobility in Corinth. It was the kind of place where people went there to compete for getting higher on the ladder, whether in relationships, in money, in status, in power. Corinth was a city that was dominated, like New York City and like Western culture in general, with this desire, this sense that the good life is getting more than you were born with, is becoming something that you weren't given at birth. And, and, and success, wisdom, prosperity, flourishing meant getting somewhere that your current circumstances didn't allow you to have. And Paul, in the midst of this reality, speaks into it and says, I just want you guys to remain where you are. Now, real quick, before we look at the, spe the specifics of this passage, and, and I'm a little tentative to speak on this passage in just one short sermon because it raises so many questions and there are so many nuances and complexities here. It's very easy to misunderstand certain aspects of it. And so I just want to say this up front. When Paul says, this is my rule in all the churches, it's easy to misunderstand that as here's a command that you just need to apply to your life in a straightforward black and white way. But if you read the chapter as a whole, you would notice that even though this rule, whatever your circumstances are, remain there, that Paul gives countless exceptions to the rule in the chapter. If you're not married, don't seek a wife. But if you want to get married, you haven't sinned. So like it's a rule that has lots of exceptions. So maybe a way to think about it is it's not so much a rule in a legalistic way. There are countless exceptions to it. It's more a posture. It's more a principle. It's more a way of emphasizing what is important and what's not important. And if you actually turned it into a rule in our sense of the word and said, whatever your job is right now, you got to work that job for the rest of your life. If you're single right now or if you're married, you got to stay in that exact circumstance for the rest of your life. You live in New York City right now. You can never move to Manhattan. You can never move to, to California. You got to stay here. That would actually subvert the very thing Paul is doing, which is your circumstances are not what finally matters. And so to baptize your current circumstances as if that's God's will, in some obvious sense, would be to commit the same mistake as saying, up there, when I finally get that in my life, that will be God's will. Both of those are mistakes. Circumstances are ultimately a matter of indifference for Paul, not because all circumstances are the same. Even in our little section we read, you kind of got the sense that, that for those who are impoverished and specifically enslaved, enslaved, that this, this experience of injustice that thwarts God's will for human beings, on the one hand, Paul says, if you are a slave, do not despair. You can still be used by God. The most important thing about your life is not these circumstances, but if you can gain your freedom, do it. And you can hear the tension there, that he's not saying all circumstances are the same, He's not saying you can never change your circumstances, but he is very clearly saying all things being equal, remaining where you are should be our principle, our posture in life. I'll give one example and then we'll move into this. When I lived in Boston for about 10 years, I did campus ministry up there. This is a pretty typical city story. Some of you probably have stories like this for, for various reasons that don't matter. Um, right now that aren't relevant, I think I moved into a different apartment eight out of my 10 years that I lived in Boston. And so almost every summer when the school year was over and I was done working with college students, I had to spend all this time, all this energy, all this focus packing up my apartment, putting everything in the boxes, hiring movers. And one of the great things about campus ministry is this freak child labor. So I didn't usually have to hire um, 
movers, I would just get all my college students to do, but still, like it's a lot of time, a lot of effort. You'd have to move into a new place, find a new place, and in, in cities like New York and Boston, you're constantly wasting a lot of money by paying the deposit on new places, all that. Then you'd unpack your new place, and then you'd have to find a new grocery store, and a new church, and a new set of friends in a neighborhood, and, and figure out kind of the, the laundromat situation, and do all this, and, and at the end of every summer, Every time I moved, I was exhausted, and the time I had, either the rest from the school year or even just to invest in things that really matter, was kind of taken away, and I was, to, to put it in Paul's language, I wasn't remaining where I was, and when I look back on those 10 years, the most significant thing about those 10 years, it's not even a top 10 thing, is whether I lived in this neighborhood or that neighborhood, and the more we're constantly trying to change or improve our circumstances. It's not that these new sets of circumstances are bad, or they're worse, or they're better. It's just that's not the main way God is at work in the life, by me being over here rather than being over there, or my life looking like this, married rather than being single, or being single rather than married, or whatever it is. And so we end up putting, if we are caught in this story, as most of us are in our culture, of this quest for upward mobility, this aspiration that in the future, my life would look like this, not what it is now, I would get there not stay here, we end up deploying most of our best time and energy in directions that are not central to how God is at work in the world. And so looking at this paragraph, chapter 7, verses 17 to 24, we'll spend most of our time there in the next few minutes, I want to point out three pieces of advice or counsel that Paul gives, and then I just want to leave it to you to think through how you apply it to different areas of your life. For you, it might be singleness or marriage. For you, it might be socioeconomic, you know, how much money you have in your bank and whether you're living paycheck to paycheck or whether you're able to live a little more comfortably or whether you like your career, or whether you feel that, that your gifts and your passions lay in another vocational choice, whether it's staying in New York or leaving New York. I mean, I know we're in Queens, we're not in Manhattan, but New Yorkers in general have disproportionately been affected by COVID-19. A lot of New Yorkers have left. I wouldn't be surprised if a decent amount of you in this church have really wondered in the last year, is it time to leave New York? And I'm not telling you what the answer is to that. Um, I do think all things being equal, and Pastor David will like that I say, is I hope you stay here. I hope you stay in Astoria Community Church. But if you don't, you haven't sinned. You know, right? That, that's Paul's logic here. And he's not damning the exceptions with faint praise. First uh, Corinthians 7, just to say this out loud, even though it's not the topic this morning, it is often understood to kind of damn marriage with faint praise. Kind of like, I wish all of you would stay single, but if you get married, you haven't sinned. It's kind of damning marriage with faint praise, it sounds like. He's really not. He's not doing that. He's just saying that if you are currently single, feeling like getting married is the most decisive event in your life is a category mistake if you're a Christian. It's a misreading of your life. It's a misreading of what God is doing in your life and in the world. And so there is freedom to go different directions, but we should have a sense of indifference ultimately to the circumstances outwardly of our lives, even though not all circumstances are equal, even though some are harder than others. So here's the first thing, and I've already kind of said it, that the first thing Paul says is whatever your circumstances are when you became a Christian, and for most of us, that's already in the past, so, so let's say right now, whatever your circumstances are right now, all things being equal, you should prioritize remaining where you are, staying, abiding, being fully present here and now in whatever your circumstances are, that to us in an upward mobility culture sounds like a death sentence. That to us feels constricting, 
It feels restricting. Here's a better way to put it. There's a great New Testament scholar named Richard Hayes. He taught at Duke for a long time. And he rephrases this expression that Paul uses three times. And if you would read the entire chapter, before this, Paul talks to married people. Earlier in chapter 7, we didn't read that out loud. We read a little after this where he begins talking to single people. And in about eight or nine different cases pastorally, people who are married, they're currently married to a Christian, they're currently married to a non-Christian, should I stay or not? They, they used to be married, but now they're widowed. They used to be married, now they're divorced. What do we do? And now in the second half of the chapter, single Christians. Do I get married? Do I stay single? It's over and over and over again. He gives us advice from Maine where you are, and yet there's exceptions in all of them in one way or another. And Richard Hayes rephrases it as, here's what Paul's aspiration is for his congregation, for, for this young Christian community, that whatever the circumstances of your life are, whatever the shape of your existence looks like right now, God's desire is primarily for you to bloom where you are planted. For you to bloom where you are planted. If you are constantly, just kind of navigate or imagine, forecast in your life, imagine all the things that you hope your life would be. Um, for some of you, that will include more change than what your life looks like now. For others, it might include more stability. But imagine your life, and if over the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, you move locations, different cities, three or four times. You switch churches three or four times. You switch your job a number of times. At the end of your life, you're going to look back and you're going to find that a lot of the years of your life that God gave you, the focus was not on being fully present where you were and being invested in what God was doing there, but on getting ready for the next thing or getting away from where you are right now. And Paul's aspiration is that whatever our circumstances look like, that we would bloom wherever we are planted. What does that look like? He mentions two things, one negatively, one positively. Negatively, starting in verse, let me just get this a little closer to my eyes, verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as if they had none. It's the first of many examples here. Let those who mourn, mourn as if they weren't mourning. Let those who rejoice, so this is basically your current set of circumstances. Some of you, your current set of circumstances are a little more an occasion for mourning. For some of you, they're a little more an occasion for rejoicing, but whatever it is, mourn or rejoice as if you weren't mourning or rejoicing. What the heck does that mean? And then he goes on and he says, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And then this last example is almost certainly not just one more example, but it's the summary of what the logic is in this paragraph, and let those who deal with the world, literally the languages, let those who use the world, use it as if they weren't fully using it. A, a way to maybe connect it to our cultural stories today is Paul is saying at least this, with the one life God has given you, don't carpe diem. Don't seize the day. Don't try to suck every ounce of pleasure and selfish satisfaction. Don't YOLO. Don't, don't have this you only live life. So you only live once, so I need to get everything out of it. He's saying wherever you are, there's an act of, as a Christian, disinvestment from your circumstances that ought to take place. You ought to hold loosely. You ought to use the things in your life. You ought to be present in them and engage them, but you ought not to fully use them. You ought to have a, a sense of distance from whether my circumstances turn out like this or whether they turn out like that. That's not the decisive thing in terms of whether I'm heartbroken or not. That's not the decisive thing in terms of whether I feel like my life is what God wants it to be. And so there is this act of disinvestment. That's what the as if not means. And so first, whatever your circumstances are, remain where you are, 
bloom where you're planted. Second, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, not only remain there, but now keep doing the same things you were doing before you were a Christian, but now do them as if you weren't doing them. Now do them as if it's not the center of your identity, as if it's not the make or break issue in terms of whether your life is a tragedy or a success that you thought it was before you became a Christian. Now disinvest from the circumstances of your life and hold them at second hand to some degree. And then third and finally, back up in our main paragraph, Paul gives all these examples, whether you're single, whether you're married, that doesn't matter. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're black or white, whether you're poor or rich, whether you are in this field or in that field, whether you have a college degree and a graduate degree and a PhD, or whether you're a high school dropout, none of that matters. Disinvest from that, bloom where you're planted. And this is the final piece of this, wherever you are, and I think this is fleshing out what bloom where you're planted means, the only thing that matters is keeping the commandments of God. The only thing that matters is that through the years and the decades that God gives you, whatever the circumstances of your life look like, whether they're more of a cause for mourning or rejoicing for you, whether you are higher up the ladder or lower up the ladder, that's not the point. And if you feel like getting higher up the ladder or not falling lower down the ladder, that's the real distinction between tragedy and success. That's actually a mistake. Instead, what matters is wherever you are, are you a person who is growing by God's grace and through the power of the Spirit and being a human being who can love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and your neighbor as yourself in whatever your circumstances are? That is what matters if the gospel is true. We all kind of have a sense. I want to flesh this out for just a few minutes before I end with what does this mean? Why is this true? What, or why does Paul say this? What would it look like? But we all kind of have a sense when we stand back that as much as probably the last year, the last four years, and this is to some degree always true, it's just been more intensified, that, that probably all of us, for all of our differences of conviction politically, economically, morally, spiritually, all of that personality-wise, we all have a sense that like, man, when, like, when the world goes this way, or when society politically goes that way, we're disturbed or we're excited. And yet, we also have a sense, I think almost all of us, and certainly the world does, that, that what's really tragic at the end of the day is when Christian communities are hypocritical, when Christian communities are self-centered, when Christian communities are cruel, racist, misogynist, not available to their neighbors, more focused on protecting their own reality, more motivated by fear over what they might lose, that when churches are unhealthy, I think it's central to our understanding of how God is at work in the world, nothing is more tragic in the last 2,000 years than the moments when the church has gone off the rails and been disobedient which is not an uncommon thing, when the church has not looked very much like Jesus. And so when you think what really matters is whether I as a Christian am over there or whether I'm over here, that's a category mistake. Your circumstances are not at all the locus of where God is at work or not at work in the world. Your circumstances instead are the arena in which you will be either faithful or unfaithful to the commandments of God. And what matters without exception for every single one of you individually, us corporately as a church, is wherever you are. Are we following Jesus? Are we giving off his aroma? Or are we doing something else that has a different kind of impact? Wherever churches are, wherever Christians are, faithfulness or unfaithfulness to the commandments of God is infinitely more significant to what God is up to in the world than where we are.
circumstantially. And so Paul says this. Let me, let me flesh this out with a couple of examples, and then I'll end, and then we'll pray, and we'll move on. Um, let me use um, an example that, that I find helpful historically. Sometimes people use it, a bit random. My birthday is June 6th, so I'll be turning 42 in a couple of months, and I've always kind of been aware of this since I was a kid, that June 6th is D-Day, which most of you probably remember what that is. It's the day the Allied forces during World War II landed on Normandy Beach in France. So the Third Reich had kind of been in control of Europe in general, but France in particular for a number of years. And I want you to imagine as an analogy that you were born and that you live in German-occupied France. Imagine your mindset before the Allied forces land on Normandy Beach. Kind of your mindset is, well, like, kind of this whole situation is not ideal, so I'm just going to make the best of it. Maybe I can get my kids into one of the better schools. Maybe I can stay away from the, the Gestapo over here. Maybe there's a little more freedom if I live over here rather than there. And that's kind of the best you can do because the whole situation is under the reign of darkness, is under this dehumanizing reality. And you're going to live your life in that part of the story with a certain logic. And the best you can do is maybe change your circumstances up a little bit. That's the best you can do. Imagine if you have now heard the Allied forces have landed in Normandy. They have decisively beaten back the Third Reich. They have decisively beaten back the Nazi army. And even though battles and skirmishes are still going on, it is only a matter of time until it reaches us. It is only a matter of time until the revolution is fully implemented, that the decisive victory has already been won, and it's only a matter of time until everything in our circumstances changes. If you understand that, you're going to do a couple of things, and that's the logic here. Paul is not saying, maybe the biggest misunderstanding of this chapter is Paul's looking at his wristwatch, metaphorically, and saying, Jesus is coming back in like three years. Why bother getting married? That's not the logic at all. His logic is more focused on what's already happened in the past. This present form of the world is already passing away. The decisive victory, the revolution has already happened. Why would you invest your time in whether you're at this part of society in German-occupied France or you're in that part of, that part of society? Instead, to, to use really concrete language, what matters is not whether you get more cultural influence in your life in the fallen world or less. Not whether you're over here or over there, it's whether you use the gifts, the time, the energy that God gives you to build up the church. Whether you use it to love your neighbor as yourself. I often say this to students over the years, and so I'll say it to you, and for each of you this will look different, but I would at least commend it to you as, a, as I think a pretty obvious application of what Paul is saying. If 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, we're looking back on our lives as the end comes near, and we're wondering, did I live my life according to the will of God? Did I live my life wisely in light of the gospel? It will not matter how many places you lived or didn't live. It will not matter how much money is in your bank account. It will not matter how much prestige and honor you received from our society or how overlooked you were. If you, on the other hand, live your life in such a way, and we just welcomed in a, a new member to your church, and David, I, I don't know him, but David mentioned he's already been really kind of devoted to his church. If you live your life in such a way, where, let me just put it as broadly as I can, that Astoria Community Church looks a little more like Jesus in this neighborhood because you were here for 20 or 30 years, you've lived your life well. You've lived your life well. 
And if you live your life in such a way where we're always distracted, other focused on other things, it doesn't matter how successful we are, how much we rejoice or mourn, and it's not that any of that is good or bad in and of itself. It's just not how God is at work in the world. The church, the body of Christ, is the locus of the revolution, is the locus of where God is at work in the world. God is not working through Democrats or Republicans. God is not working through white people, black people, or Asians, or Latins. He's not working through rich people or poor people. He's not working through smart people or dumb people. He is working through you, the body of Christ. And therefore, of infinite significance is that wherever you are, are you blooming where you are planted? Are you keeping second things, second things, and disinvesting from them? And are you keeping first things, first things? This is Paul's ambition for his churches. And so let me give you, as we end, just kind of two litmus tests, kind of what does this look like? Here, one negative, one positive. Just, I, I think it's worth, even though I don't like being negative at all, it's worth kind of thinking about what does it look like when we go wrong here? What does it look like when we're not doing this? And I'm going to describe this very broadly. Um, I'm certain that there is an element of truth in what I'm going to describe in all of our lives at different moments. All of these have certainly been true of me. If we are not remaining where we are, blooming where we're planted, disinvesting from secondary circumstances, primarily investing in building up the church, loving our neighbor as ourselves, worshiping God in Christ, and that's the center out of which we live, that's the center of our aspiration, then I think a couple of things begin to happen kind of you can call them symptoms of the deeper disease of not understanding this, not doing this. Here's the, the kind of first thing, is I think that if you're not remaining where you are, if you're not blooming where you're planted, probably your life is going to begin to be characterized by a certain level of anxiety. Because the center out of which you operate is not here and now, it's there and then. And I don't know whether I'm going to get there. I don't know whether my life is ever going to look like that. And so I'm always wondering, what can I do right here, right now? And I'm kind of shaking, I'm nervous, I'm always distracted, and I'm wondering, what can I do to get my life to what I want it to be? And the more anxious you are, you might also at the same time turn your head to the side and say, okay, I also want to serve the Lord at Astoria you know, Community Church. I also want to get to know my neighbors who aren't Christians. I also want to work on these sin issues in my life. I want to be able to use my gifts more positively. But your best energy, your best time, your best you is not going to be invested in that. The best energy of your life is going to be invested elsewhere, and it's going to be characterized, I think, by anxiety rather than by a contentness, rather than by a sense of expectation that God is already at work here and now, and I just want to be a part of that. Second, and I think this is a little more significant, is the next step after anxiety, I think, is distraction. If you are constantly Googling for the next job, constantly looking at a better apartment with more space than the one you have now, constantly thinking about on the dating app, am I finally going to meet somebody that I like? None of that is wrong in and of itself. But if you are constantly distracted with that stuff, the people around you, you might very well not be aware of it, the people around you experience you as kind of an empty suit, an empty chair. You're just not there. You're just not available. You don't even know when your neighbors around you are going through a hard time or a good time. You don't even know what's going on in other people's lives and in, in the body of Christ to, to serve, to use your gifts, because you're unavailable. And then most significantly, I think, and, and I've seen this in my own life, I've seen this working with college students and graduate students for a long time, the most significant litmus test for when we're not remaining where we are, when we're not blooming where we're planted, is we begin to fall prey to this insidious subconscious logic that we begin to postpone obedience. 
We begin to delay obedience to God's commands. I'll be financially generous once my life looks like that. I'll start thinking about sharing the gospel with my non-Christian neighbors once these other things get figured out in my life. I'll start dealing with this pornography thing in my life once that's taken care of. I'll start thinking about praying more and reading the Bible more and serving in the local church with my spiritual gifts, figuring out what my spiritual gifts are once A, B, and C gets figured out. And the thing is, when you're in that story, A, B, and C never get figured out. They just, they never do. It's this endless quest that never comes to an end. And you come to the end of your life and everything was secondary things and the primary things got left behind. And we even begin to transgress God's commandments for our lives in order to go after these other things. And so I think those are just a little, um, couple of snapshots of what it might look like to be able to diagnose yourself if, and we're all here to some extent or another, we're not fully remaining where we are and blooming where we're planted. What does it look like then? And I think it looks like this. I'm going to read one of the final statements in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. This is at the end of the longest discussion of the resurrection and the hope we have that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the revolution has already been decisively won. Jesus already reigns. The kingdom of God has already come. And now it's our job to begin implementing that by investing in that. And at the end of chapter 15, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always be abounding in the work of the Lord. What is that, the work of the Lord? Knowing that in the Lord, your labor, your work, your effort, your time and energy is not in vain. You're not wasting your time. And later on in 1 Corinthians 7, we didn't read it out loud, Paul actually makes a distinction between the things of the Lord and the things of the world. And that's a really easy distinction to misunderstand because the things of the world are not bad. They're not sinful. He actually includes in the things of the world your spouse and your marriage, your job, where you live. What he's saying is, and here's the way I would put it in, in my own language today. I, I found the students often find this helpful, even if it's often not what they want to hear. One way to, to cash out the value of what Paul is saying here is be careful that you don't over-spiritualize your job, as if that's where God is at work through you. Be careful you don't over-spiritualize your marriage or your singleness, as if me being married is how I'm finally going to be used by God. Me staying single or not staying single, that's how. Or me having this much money or not me living in a city, as if New York City is more important or less important. New York City is a matter of indifference. What matters is whether there are faithful Christians here or unfaithful Christians. And that's just as true in a rural area, in another country. Are we blooming where we're planted? Let's not over-spiritualize these other aspects. And so, positively, what does it mean? And I think, among other things, here is the way I would put it. As we remember what God has already done in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrections, we look forward to the fact that we already have assurance that through the body of Christ and his mission of proclaiming, embodying the gospel in all the corners of the earth, all the neighborhoods of the world, and as we wait for Jesus to come back, not wondering how the story is going to turn out, we know that God will finish what he started. What matters is that local bodies of believers are faithful to the story of Jesus here and now. Here's, here's what I would encourage you to positively. Whatever the circumstances of your life look like right now, you have permission to be grieved or more excited over them, depending on what they are. Paul doesn't say you can't mourn and you can't rejoice. He says don't let that mourning or that rejoicing be the primary response you have to your life. Instead, as we remember what God has done in the past, as we look forward to what he's going to do in the future, be fully present here 
and now, not there and then to what God is doing. There's this meme that often gets thrown out on social media. It always cracks me up where like somebody has like a simple task to do and they mess it up spectacularly and the response is always you had one job. You had one job. And this is what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. You have one job. And it's not to get higher up on the ladder. It's not to go from being single to married or married to single. Get into that job as if God is working more among lawyers than among McDonald's employees or vice versa. It's wherever you are to be people who, by God's grace, love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. And if we do that, then we're faithful. We're, we're consistent with our, our, our ambition is correlated to God's strategy in the world. And so in chapter one, there's a strategy. Wherever people are, and if anything, God tends to choose people on the margins and lower on the ladder. But wherever we are, stay there and just be faithful. I'm going to end with this. There's, there's a line from an old French Catholic novelist, and I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because I'm terrible pronouncing French words. And so just not to make a mockery of the French language. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. His last name is B-L-O-Y. Not quite sure. I know it's not Bloy, but I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. And in a novel he wrote in the late 1800s, he says this through one of his characters, the only sadness, the only real tragedy in life, the only real failure in life is not to be a saint. It's not to be a saint. Not just in the sense of becoming a Christian, but really being a Christian in your life, really being a follower of Jesus in whatever you're doing. So this is my desire, my ambition for you, that it's not to say that, again, all of your circumstances are equal, that some are God's will and some are not, or that God's status quo is more one than the other, and not that you can't respond more with frustration or excitement over some rather than others, but don't let that become the center of the narrative. Don't let that become the center of where all your best energy and focus goes to. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year, decade after decade, let it be instead, compared to a year ago, compared to a decade ago, whatever my circumstances are, am I a little more conformed to the image of Jesus? Do I know my neighbors a little more? And am I able to know them and love them and serve them? Do I know my spiritual gifts? Am I more equipped to use them so that if I'm a hand rather than an eye, I'm actually operating as a hand in this place rather than an eye? If I do know I'm a hand, then I'm actually operating as a hand here in Astoria Community Church. And if we do that, I think those are the ways that God is primarily at work in the world. Um, that's my desire for you. I'd just commend this chapter, reading it. Um, but again, this is my rule in all the churches Paul says, that circumcision, uncircumcision, singleness, marriage, rich, poor, New York City, rural area, this career path, that career path, none of those things matter. Do them as if they weren't the primary thing. Instead, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself and do the work of the Lord with the best energy, the best time of your life by building up the body of Christ to look a little more like Jesus than before you got there. And you will have lived your life well by God's grace and for his glory. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Astoria Community Church. Thank you for Pastor David. Thank you for the, the new member here. And thank you for all the saints here in the congregation. I do pray that you give each of us wisdom and grace to remain where we are. Not because this set of circumstances right here and now is better or worse than another set of circumstances we can move on to later, but because this is the focus. Loving you, loving our neighbors, building up the body of Christ wherever we are. We pray that by your grace and for your glory that you would help us to invest primarily in the health of the body of Christ 
in the welfare of our neighbors, and that we would be willing even to take up our cross and follow Jesus, to be a part of that, even if it means a little more mourning than rejoicing. I do pray that you would pour out your wisdom, your grace upon this church, continue to pour it out, and we do pray, help us to bloom where we are planted, whatever that is right now in our lives. And we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.